Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Okay, here we go again. Dr. Bill Choby, uh, uh, Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, this is one of uh, another one in a series that we're doing on this topic. Today, we're going to talk about the founding of the Republic. Now, uh, mind you that... We, we talked in the past about the French and Indian War and the debt that was accrued by the English and the French and how this had an effect on the colonists. But uh, the beginning of what we can call our republic goes back much further than that. Well, mind you, in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, there's a lot of uh, persecution going on, not only from the political uh, leaders, but also from the organized religions of Catholicism, Anglicanism, and Protestantism in general. Uh, you basically had to tell the line to their way of, of viewing how uh, uh, the Bible interpreted uh, Christianity for them. And the Catholics uh, would, uh, in Spain were burning the heretics at the stake or leaving them in, imprisoned uh, to languish until death or while they were stealing their property. And uh, that, of course, we, re we remember that had much to do with the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. But as, as we move forward into the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, uh, there are different groups by this time had enough uh, knowledge of the, the Holy Scriptures that they decided upon themselves that organized religion was not necessarily uh, what they wanted to believe. Now, uh, while the uh, Inquisition was going on in the northern parts of Europe, the organized religions of uh, Anglicanism or the Protestant uh, were also persecuting, and they were uh, hanging people instead of burning them. They called them witches and warlocks, and that was justification for it. But it's basically the same thing. It was the arbitrary power of rule over people uh, led to when Mike was right, they were in bondage. So people wanted to break out of that, and they used the Bible as a basis to do that, and that they were persecuted. And one little group eventually uh, left England and went to, to the Netherlands to where they... Uh, formed their little groups, and they were content for a while there, but then they started to be persecuted again, and finally they petitioned the King of England to give them uh, a charter in the New World. So that little group took off in um, August of 1620 and began to make their way to what they felt was a charter in the colony of Virginia. Mind you that there was a previous colony there in 1603. It was pretty much considered to be the end of the world. Let's get rid of these malcontents and miscreants by sending them off to somewhere where they won't be bothering us anymore. So off they went in their little ship, the Mayflower. And on their way across the Northern Atlantic, they encountered severe storms that threw them way off course. And after three months at sea, you can imagine the cost of these 102 explorers, both men and women and children. Uh, many died along the way. Uh, but they ended up and they found themselves off the shore of Cape Cod, what we now call Massachusetts. Now, at this point, they, the charter that they had for Virginia was worthless. So they had to find a way to uh, how they were going to organize their body politic, if you will. And um, being that they realized they're on their own and they're free to make 
whatever agreement they want between them, uh, they came up with the Mayflower Compact. Now, this is really important because, uh, and I'm going to read this to you, because this set the, for the first time in uh, recorded history a free people being totally uh, uh, uncontrolled by any external forces except the severity of, of nature, uh, chose to come together uh, to create their own laws. And this is, uh, let me read it to you here, just to get a sense of what was going on in their minds. This is 1620, mind you. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith in honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together in a civic body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just law and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. There it is, the first rule of law by the consent of the governor. Well, we, as I explained in our last uh, session, that colony uh, attempted to put together a social community, and they had a, a communal type of living, uh, thinking that they were following like the what happened with the Acts of the Apostles. Well, that didn't work out too well because even though they were in this foreign land where uh, the Algonquin Indians had prepared it and uh, harvested their crops there, uh, they remember the Algonquins were were scared of it now that they smallpox went through there and they thought the land was cursed. So they had prepared it for this colony to assume it without having to cut the trees and do all remove the stumps. Uh, but that first year, this communal garden, of course, failed uh, to provide enough food for everybody. So the following year, the uh, the governor there said, "Look, everybody gets ten acres of land. Go off and you know take care of yourself." And they were so successful that they had a bounty, they had a surplus, and from that they had their first Thanksgiving, inviting the Indians and others. But it was because of basically socialism failing and capitalism working that uh, saved them that day. But the, the Mayflower Complex, very, very important for laying a foundation of thought in the minds of people, of how they're going to organize being you know, so many months away from the, the shores of Europe and the control of the kings and the, and the organized religions, uh, that the, the, uh, the idea caught hold. And later on, there was um, uh, many of the concept of the consent of the governed. So as we said before, later on in, in the 18th century, um, when we had the French and Indian War, uh, the, the debts that were accrued by that French and Indian War nearly doubled that of the crown. They were up now to 132 million pounds. And the French, of course, likewise had this huge debt. And the French decided to lay that debt upon the rich people. But King George in the parliament thought that, well, they defended uh, America from the French and the Indians, and therefore the American uh, colonists owe them something. And, and in return, they, gave, they put taxes upon them, uh, expecting them to pay their fair share, if you will. Well, this was not very well received by the people who in, in the colonies, the three million people or so, that were eking out a living, uh, facing the hardships of, of, the, of nature and, and uh, the, the many uh, different languages and, and styles from all the different uh, people that uh, emigrated there. 
Uh, so it was it was a, a harsh kind of living, and the old uh, Yankee Scrabble uh, was sort of formed in uh, at that time. And with the the uh, uh, administration of taxes upon them, many of which were uh, initially received, but then later became to be so much uh, that was overburdening that the resistance started to to uh, grow. Sons of Liberty were formed. Sam Adams, whose father was uh, a minister, was bankrupted by uh, the taxes and the government. Uh, was one of the reasons why Sam was such an ardent supporter of freedom. Uh, his father, being a minister, had the uh, had a brewery, and I think today's uh, Sam Adams Brewery uh, is named after that of sorts. But it's what set uh, Sam on a lifelong uh, resistance to the crown. Now, the soldiers were in Boston, and they were patrolling around, and they would be uh, jeered and snowballs thrown at them and stuff like that on a regular basis. But one particular day, they were uh, in March of 1770, a contingency with rather being uh, hit pretty hard with snowballs and, and stones and bricks and stuff. Uh, some of it was in response to an unfortunate death of a young boy who had uh, was part of a jeering crowd that uh, eventually got shot. Um, but the uh, this group, this crowd, unruly crowd, kept backing the soldiers up against the wall. And then finally, one of the soldiers uh, slipped and fell. His gun went off. And then the word was said, given out the fire. And a volley was unleashed into this unruly crowd. And, and at the front of that uh, was uh, a man named Crispus Attic. He was one of the first to fall. And, and uh, he was a, a, an African-American a free African-American. So the, um, this incident became known as the Boston Massacre, although it really wasn't a massacre. But Sam Adams and his buddy uh, Paul Revere uh, wanted to use this to, for a propaganda tool to really stoke the fires of resistance to the Brits. And Paul Revere, being a silversmith and a dentist of sorts, put together a silver plate that was later used to print the, the now famous picture of the, the uh, Boston Massacre, as he called it. And printed copies of this were uh, released all over the, the colonies, and it got people mad, as propaganda will. But the uh, soldiers, when brought to trial, they were defended by a famous Boston attorney, John Adams, who we will see later on, uh, turned against the Brits. But he defended these soldiers successfully, saying that it was um, an act of self-defense and therefore wasn't just open hostility. So they got the soldiers were released and found to be innocent because of John Adams. But I'm sure that really hurt his practice. But he was a brilliant lawyer and he brought the facts to bear. And uh, I believe it was he that said, uh, facts are stubborn figures that we may hear repeated you know, sometime today. Uh, but uh, this um, resistance with the, the Sons of Liberty and, and the, uh, the agitations that continued on, I got to a point when, whenever the tea tax was levied, and the tea tax was more than just tea, it had to do with you know, playing cards or any legal documents. It's just uh, the dice that the soldiers used. It's just, it was on everything. So they said enough is enough, and they, whenever a, a shipload of tea came in, from on a British ship because they had a monopoly on the tea. Nobody else could bring it in there. They had to buy their tea. And of course, the price they, they chose, this is that might versus right kind of thing. Uh, so the, the colonies, the colonists, the resistance, the sense of liberty dressed up as Indians and they jumped on the boat and threw all the tea into the harbor. 
And uh, this act was uh, what we known as the Boston Tea Party, but there was also similar uh, tea parties in New York City, in Annapolis, and Philadelphia, and, and even in Charleston, South Carolina. So it was it was a popular way to show their displeasure with the tea tax. So the uh, as all of this was going on, the twelve of the thirteen colonies had representatives that got together and they met in Philadelphia in 1774, and uh, they convened the first Continental Congress. And out of this became the Articles uh, of Confederation, that uh, was the precept to eventually what became our Constitution. And incidentally, in the Articles of Confederation, there's a, a clause that says that they are perpetually uh, bound together. And this becomes important later on when Abraham Lincoln is saying that the South could not succeed because the original uh, contract with the colonies was for perpetual uh, membership. So they went on with many more taxes and many more acts and back and forth and take three months to get an answer from whenever they objected to this or that. And that certainly didn't make it easier. I'm sure if they had mass communications we had today, this much of what would have happened would have been avoided. But uh, the colonists, as their rage and continued there, it was not infrequently to get the, the local uh, tax collector and they would tar and feather him and run him through town or they'd hang him, uh, you know, dummies up in effigy and burn them and things like that. And even to the point of burning the, the, the homes of the tax collectors down if they were considered to be uh, agents of the crown. It got to be pretty nasty, and it finally came to a point where the, uh, the colonists, uh, they had their... Uh, armory of sorts in, in Concord, uh, in Massachusetts. And uh, the Brits wanted to get a hold of that because they figured they, were, they needed to disarm the, the countrymen or there was going to be trouble. Well, then that uh, what happened that night, and as the colonists uh, prepared for all of this, this was, was commemorized, uh, commemorated by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And you may remember uh, this poem, from when you were in school. Of course, I did. I don't know what they're teaching today, but it goes as such. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive that remembers that famous date and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore shall be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the folks, country folks to be up and to arm. Well, that's what they did. And the Brits, you know, they landed over there, uh, went across, uh, uh, I guess, the Charles River, and they landed and they started their march towards Concord. And they came to uh, the next morning on April 19th. Uh, today we call it Patriots Day, by the way. Uh, they encountered a number of the Minutemen who called themselves Minutemen because they were ready to grab their rifles in a minute, and everybody had a, a rifle on a farm. And they stood out in front of the church at Lexington Green in Lexington, Massachusetts. And as they lined up and the soldiers came, the officers was riding back and forth, and he was obviously very unhappy, expected not to be opposed as they went to Concord. And uh, he shouted out to them, lay down your arms, you damn rebels, or you're all dead men. And they waited a little bit for a response, and they didn't lay down their arms. So he said, fire. And the soldiers unleashed a volley into the, into the brave men. And, and with that, uh, the men retreated. 
uh, sniping at them on the way. And uh, they were running out of paper wads for their muskets. And uh, the minister, the pastor of the church, came out with a Watts hymnal. Watts was uh, the common uh, hymnal that they had at these churches. And he would tear out pages of Watts' hymnal and give them to him. And he says, give them Watts, boys. (laughs) And so they took that as wadding, and off they went. And as they retreated and retracted, the British soldiers made their way to Concord. Now, at Concord, they had to cross a bridge before they could get to the armory. And uh, there was uh, this again was commemorated by a famous American poet. And I got to tell you, I, I've been at both of these places, and this little this little bridge was it was interesting. Uh, the NRA has a statue of, of the embattled farmer, but but uh, Emerson said, "By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard around the world." And that's where they stopped them. Now, that bridge is not that wide. Maybe you can two or three men abreast could go across at the time. The, the little creek wasn't that big, but it was flooded at the time. It was April. And on the English side of that bridge, there's two graves. And the two graves of the first uh, British soldiers that were killed there, and they were 16 years old. So you can imagine what, at what age they were brought here uh, to, as British soldiers. But that's what it was at the time. Uh, so as the, the Brits withdrew towards uh, to Boston, they were being sniped at left and right from behind every rock and tree and, and uh, really guerrilla warfare as we know it. And they paid a heavy price on their way back. And of course, by the time they got back into the safety of Boston, it was a whole other story about what was going to happen next. But that word of what uh, that incident at Lexington Green found its way all over the colonies. And even though there was, you know, back in 1770, 75, it, uh, it did take a while to get out there. But by the following month in May, uh, there was a little group in western Pennsylvania at Hannestown, which was a little town that George Washington uh, had cut out on the way to evicting the, the French from Fort Duquesne. And that Hannestown... Um, they got together and they decided they were going to say something about it. And they developed what was called the Hannestown Resolve on May 16th of 75. Incidentally, if you read that, uh, the Hannestown Resolve, you'll see that there's some language in there that you're going to become familiar with a little later. Following that, the following uh, week in um, Mecklenburg, North Carolina, on May 20th, they came up with a Mecklenburg resolution. So you can see this was the, the resistance here was growing and it was widespread. Eventually, every town and little county and state and uh, city, they had their own feelings about this and they'd write it down in these little declarations. So the, um, as the, uh, the people were more and more upset about, it, they didn't really have a, a common calling except that, well, they're, you know, the Brits and the King, they're the most powerful army in the world, a bunch of bad guys. We don't like what they're doing and they hurt our guys. And what are we going to do about it? But they didn't have a moral foundation from which to put their lives on the line. So there was a, a lot of the uh, support for the freedom and the Liberty it came from the, from the pulpit, uh, but it wasn't unifying until uh, as the, the local governments got together, state colony governments got together, there was uh, some firebrands out there, and one of which was uh, Patrick Henry on the Virginia House of Burgesses uh, in, uh, in March. They were, this is prior to the incident at Lexington, but he said that there's no longer room for hope. And I quote him, please. There is no longer room for hope. If we wish to be free, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that we have left to us. 
They tell me we are weak, but we shall gather strength by resolution. Three million people armed in the holy cause of liberty in such a country are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. We shall not fight alone. God presides over the destinies of nations, and we will raise up friends for us. The battle is not to the strong alone, it is to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. Is life so dear, or peace so sweet, as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Ah, forbid it, almighty God. I know what course others may take, but for me, give me liberty or give me death. End of quote. So the, the sentiments were stirring, but what really galvanized all of them together was penned together by Thomas Paine and common sense. Now, Thomas Paine was a three-time loser over in England. He came here to sort of forget his past, uh, divorce and bankruptcy and things like that. He was more of a ne'er-do-well, uh, but he was a malcreant or, or a uh, miscreant. And uh, he sat down and he wrote the uh, common sense address to the inhabitants of America. And on the following subjects of the origin, designs of government in general, and, and remarks on the English Constitution of monarchy and hereditary succession, thoughts on the perfect state of American affairs, uh, present state of American affairs, and the present ability of America with the same to, I uh, can't read that. Anyhow, uh, so here we have this document. It was printed and scattered and a million copies sold. I mean, this is like more more successful than Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he had, you know, three million people and you sell a million copies of a pamphlet. Uh, that really got around. Everybody got to read it. But that was a galvanizing thing. And in the in the book, Thomas uh, Paine's book, Common Sense, he he sets the foundation of how this it, it, uh, the comparable situation was with Moses and, and getting away from the Pharaoh, the Exodus and all that sort of stuff, and how they leaned upon their faith and how they leaned upon the sovereignty of God as being the source of all justice and liberty and freedom. And so from that, uh, with all this uh, being repeated again and again, all over the colonies by the Black Brigade, which were all the ministers from the pulpit were basically supporting the same ideas or the same concept. They got everybody riled up to believe that this was a just cause. It, it was right and proper for them to rebel against the crown. So when they finally got together in Philadelphia again, they, wanted to put together a declaration of their intentions to the king, and we call this today the Declaration of Independence. Now, mind you that every town, every county, every city, every state had already had their own form of the declaration, going back to the Hannestown Resolve and the Meckleburg, and in fact, we call that the, the American Scripture, if you will, all of what had happened there. There's an excellent book on that, by the way, if you're interested in following up on it, by that title, The American Scripture. Um, so they came around, they had a committee, and on the committee was Ben Franklin, it was John Hay and uh, Thomas Jefferson. I might have been somebody else, I forget right now, but uh, they looked at Jefferson as being learned, and he was eloquent, and he was younger, and so they said, okay, you know, Tom, you know what's going on here. Uh, why don't you write this up? We're going down to the pub. We're going to talk about this some more. So they left him alone, and he had this little desk that he put on his lap, and he wrote this thing out and with uh, different... Uh, uh, modifications and back and forth kind of thing. It became the Declaration as we know it today, the Declaration of Independence. And I'd, I'd like to read that for you. Just bear with me. But, you know, now and then we need to read this sort of thing to just remember where our roots really come from. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds 
which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal stations to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cases which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to this end, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed would dictate that government long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and according all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invinces the desire to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right. It is their duty to throw off such governments and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object the establishment of absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And he goes down, he has a whole list of different things that they objected to. But it ended with this. With a firm reliance on the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. When might is right, we live in bondage. When right is might, we live in freedom. So that that became a promise. And... Uh, I know we're getting a little bit uh, long today, so let me finish that next time with you, and we'll continue on the founding of the Republic. But that's pretty much where it came from. And you can see the character of the Mayflower Compact in, this, in the same very same language. So I thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope I've given you a little insight of why we are Americans and what we have is so special in the history of the world. And uh, with that, let me end here. Thank you. <music>